You're listening to the Star Wars Report. Many boffins died to bring you this podcast. Uh, no, I do the Star Wars Report. Uh, my background, uh, I'm a current Air Force Intelligence officer uh, working at the uh, 50th Attack Squadron at Shaw Air Force Base. So uh, a little bit of military background, but also just a giant Star Wars fan. Um, and also my nerddom comes from the prequels. First film I saw was Phantom Menace. I absolutely love them. So I'm excited to talk about all of the various factions, politics, war, all those things in Star Wars. Hi, I'm Stephen Kent. I host the Beltway Banthas podcast. We do politics and Star Wars, interview people left, right, and center about their fandom and love of the series. Um, on the side, I am a culture writer in the Washington Examiner and a political commentator. I bounce around cable news stations and uh, talk about stuff. Stuff. Stuff and things. I'm Thomas Harper. I write and podcast uh, for a site called The Legal Geeks. So you may have seen uh, last year we did a mock court martial of Poe Dameron where we convicted him of all of his crimes <laughs> at San Diego Comic Con last year. Uh, we take legal issues. I, I personally take legal issues in Star Wars and sort of analyze them as a way about teaching the law, but also giving you a new angle to watch the film. So, for example, uh, you see C-3PO and R2 get kicked out of the cantina. Is that unlawful discrimination under U.S. law? So stuff like that. <laughs> uh, in the real world, uh, I spent seven years on active duty. I'm still in the reserves as a uh, major in the United States Army. Uh, I'm a JAG officer by trade and now in private practice. So, uh, <laughs> My name is Andy Dykes. Um, I do not podcast or write, but um, I am also just a giant Star Wars nerd. Uh, I fly satellites for a living, um, and before so I've been in spacecraft operations for 15 years, both at NASA and now private at Intelsat. And uh, the other thing that I think is a little interesting about me is that I worked at Space Camp for three years. So. I have a lot of stories that begin one time at space camp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I'm Brandy. I'm your moderator this morning. Um, I work in intelligence and emergency management um, for Bank of America. Um, my specialty in intelligence is in terrorism. I'm going to talk to you about that a little bit in a second. Um, yeah, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I do not remember the first time I watched the series because um, I was so young. So I was brought up into this. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about where this panel camp came from. Um, and if you've been to any of the panels that I've been on in the last couple of years, you've heard me talk about this a little bit already. Um, but I have my master's in terrorism and political violence from the University of St. Andrews. Um, and my thesis was titled, The Dialogue of Terrorism in Popular Culture and Its Effect on the Masses, The Case Study of Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. Um, my project worked towards looking at the relationship between popular culture and the way the general public views terms and um, themes associated with terrorism, particularly those that they use in their propaganda. So um, it showed that there was a clear, like, clear connection between uh, Star Wars fans and the way that they think of those words, even with no prior prompting about Star Wars. Um, so this panel for me was kind of exploring why that is. Where do we see those sorts of themes on both the side of the Empire and the Rebellion? Uh, because to the word terrorism, the only direct Star Wars references I got were to Kylo and Darth Vader. And that may not be where you immediately think of, I mean, they may not be what you immediately think of when you think, okay, well, someone in this can be identified as a terrorist. So it's just really interesting to me. 
Uh, there were also two other panels that were combined into this. So we've all got a slightly different idea of what we want to talk about, and I tried to sort of bring those all under one umbrella. So we're going to see how well I did that. So the first thing I want to do is talk about the three words that were in the title. Um, so we're going to start with um, radicalism. Would anybody want to take a stab at what that might mean? Did I do well when we talked? Yeah, you did. Okay. Radicalism, as, as I understand it, and Brandy will correct me if I'm wrong, but radicalism is basically taking a population and polarizing it and doing it uh, doing it it either happens intentionally or not intentionally and but once it happens once radical radicalization happens it's the polarity is so great that they can then be manipulated yep that's and I, right. I think radical is often used as a pejorative as a, a way to critique people and I think that a lot of times that's wrong um, a lot of times that's wrong. I mean, these people uh, who you might call radicals, I think of as being laser focused on outcomes of justice and results without a care for politics and process. Um, and so, you know, one person's radical is another person's rebel. I think from the empire standpoint, if you are not directly towing the line, then you're a radical, right? So the, the uh, I think the emperor's view on this and, and the, the rank and file imperial officer and citizen, it, it does them no, no service. It's not effective for them to, to draw comparisons between, okay, somebody like a Princess Leia or a Mon Mothma that might try to achieve a goal politically first and result or resort to violence second or last is in one category and then somebody like Saul Guerrero is on the other end. They're all extremists because their goal is to keep their citizens in line with their vision of how the, the galaxy should be run, so to speak. And by lumping all of these elements, all these factions in as extremists, uh, it, it gets the populace scared and on board with their view of things. And also it gets them to, to rely and feel like they need to rely on the Galactic Empire to, to save them from this scary element. Yeah, I mean, I think probably, you know, fear is the number one tool in, in the kit of government in this context. And when you can make the population more nervous about what the alternatives are based on, uh, as opposed to what you currently have, you're able to maintain your power longer. And that's why you see a lot of infighting in political factions between you know, the people who kind of want to play by the rules and the people who want to go off the book, because the people who go off the book provide fodder for the critics, the government, um, you know, the, the other side to say, you're all crazy, you're all radicals. Um, and this is sort of where the major tension comes up. And you see that play out in Star Wars quite clearly uh, in, the, in the context of Rogue One. So we're going to go back to radicalism in a second. So we're going to move on, on to rebellion. Um, here's my scholarly definition. The only thing you guys didn't touch on is that a lot of times radicals can be intolerant of other people's beliefs. So we see that with Saw. But we're going to talk about that in a little while. So the next one we have is resistance. Hmm. So what's the difference between radicalism, resistance, and rebellion? Resistance starts to become active. <clears throat> resistance, um, and this is, you know, so there, there's, you can be, you can have your views and you can be radically polarized and, and ex have extreme views and beliefs, but if you're not doing anything that is contrary to the, in this case, the, the government, we'll go with the government, contrary to what the government is saying we should be doing, then you're not resisting. Um, and that can be both, uh, resisting can be both within and without 
of the legal context, I think. Starting, you guys go now. <laughs> but you see it in, you know, I won't reiterate my comment, but again, the Empire doesn't see a distinction. The, the First Order doesn't see a distinction. Um, but, but I think in the context of Star Wars, again, you see this, and I think this is the beautiful thing about the post-Disney content is, is now the Rebellion is not this just group of uh, knights riding in on, on their horses to save the day. I mean, there's a lot of gray area to what they do. But you see it play out in, in a variety of contexts. I think Mon Mothma is a perfect example of what just resistance uh, looks like to me, a, a poster child for it. Before she ever defected and, and resigned her seat in the Senate, she was committed to try to, trying to resolve the differences and trying to, to bring some semblance of good back to the empire from her seat in the galactic senate so she wasn't ready i mean you know she felt this duty and an obligation to represent her planet chandrilla and you know her view of things was i can politically push back i've got a voice i'm a a stalwart that's been around since the days before the clone wars even people listen to me uh you know the the or uh, Alderaan did the same thing uh, in a certain context, and so we can uh, we can use certain means to push back on policies and, and actions and, and take effect that way. Yeah, I don't want to. I think you definitely covered it, Thomas, because to me the difference between resistance and rebellion, which we're about to talk about, is that resistance doesn't have to be violent. So resistance can be anything from like passively not accepting what's going on. Um, to rebellion, which is our which is our next term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In rebellion, <laughs> you can you can um, be violent. Um, as a terrorism scholar, I just find these words very fascinating, and as we use them, I wanted to definitely make sure that we all kind of had at least a baseline understanding of um, okay. what they mean. Thank you, Andy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, the next thing I want to talk about is how these three words fall into the wonderful shades of gray that make Star Wars so wonderful. And they're, they're laughing at my memes, guys, so we'll do this so you can see. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so how do shades of gray work within Star Wars, um, well, especially in the extended universe, to make it so wonderful? Well, and I'll actually, I'll kick us off with, you have to just go back to the original film because it's just a small, brief line, but I, I immediately think of how uh, Tarkin talks and brags about, ah, the, the Imperial Senate will no longer be a concern. And there's just that, just that one line in the background kind of gives a context to the rebellion of like the more resistant side of things, of any semblance of um, representative government has been dissolved. And that small line uh, gives way to what the rebellion is actually trying to, to accomplish on that next level. And I think that's an important thing because those small little background pieces of, of politics and Star Wars do help give a, a context to someone like Mon Mothma who has that kind of air of legitimacy that she gives to the rebellion as someone who came out of that system. And you see, I, I love Mon Mothma. She's this great example of, of somebody who is in the Empire's eyes as big or bigger a threat than any starship or fighting force that the Rebellion has sort of cobbled together at that point because it is a big deal if you how many of folks have watched the, the Rebels series the cartoon series so there's sort of a seminal episode where you see Mon Mothma defect uh, there's and, and the catalyst for it and you don't see it on screen but there's a massacre at, at a planet called Gorman that the Empire uh, perpetuates and, and uh, that's the breaking point for Mon Mothma but she's such a, a seminal figure in the Senate uh, that the Empire goes to try to hunt her down 
before she can get out and, and be this unifying figure that could bring these disparate cells of the rebellion together. And they send two Star Destroyers and a set of their brand new TIE Defenders after her. I mean, they, they take this threat seriously because they realize what it could mean for this nascent rebellion. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, a just a fascinating look at that we never had when it was just the original trilogy and maybe some of the Clone Wars. Yeah, and what I was going to add to that, and we're going to talk about this more a little bit later, um, but uh, it's it's really part of the reason she is a, such a big threat. She and uh, Leia and, uh, um, oh God, Jyn Erso, um, uh, is that the way that you control, you can't control everybody physically. Hearts and minds, as we say, is the way to it. And the Empire had moved gradually, I think, from, from ruling by you know, the consent of the people to ruling through fear. That's what the Death Star was all about. That's what the Death Star is all about. That's what the bigger and bigger ships, the larger, the scary, um, the scary uh, stormtroopers that are all the same and uniform, it's fear. And the problem is that, the problem with some of the people that we'll talk about like Saw is that he, he was trying to accomplish different things with the same method. He, he thought that the, we, they needed to be more fearful. But the people that we often look to as, as good, and I'm, I'm not putting a judgment on there, but the ones we usually refer to as good, like Leia and, and, and those guys, uh, did it the other way around. They know that people were seeing the methods by which they were accomplishing their goals and that's really super important. We'll talk more about that. I, in a I feel like we have a tendency to bias ourselves towards, in, in many cases, the people who want to preserve the wheel or turn the wheel backwards. And we are, are, are sort of nervous about the people who say they want to smash the wheel, Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Saw Gerrera, in many cases, why on earth should he look at Mon Mothma, somebody who was part of the old system, played ball in the new system, and then only moved out when she became directly under threat, um, that she has a good vision of what the future should be like? Because he was trained by the Republic to fight the Separatists and just to watch the, uh, the Republic become uh, monstrous, and him as a result. So, I think in a lot of times, the, these people who are trying to play the radical game uh, are rightfully skeptical of the system that has been built around them and legitimized. When, and that's a really good point about Saw because he, you know, his experience wasn't this like hunky dory one with the rebellion. You see in the Clone Wars that the the Republic at the time didn't commit. Uh, forces didn't commit this massive effort to help Onderon, his his home planet. They sent a couple of Jedi, two three Jedi, uh, some clone troopers, and a few munitions. And you know the idea was we don't want to get involved in internal Onderon politics, but stuff really hit the fan. And after uh, you know the, the that episode arc sort of ends with tragedy for him. The Republic is not rolling in to to assist and and help put the pieces back on this planet. But Saw's lost his sister. Uh, he's seen that that uh, you know the this limitation, this internally uh, uh, built limitation on what you're willing to do to assist and to achieve your goal uh, cost him very dearly. And I think he carries that with him onward into the Galactic Civil War. So we have one thing we're going to cover, and then we're going to come back to Saul, because I know that he is just an, a major issue when we talk about radicalism in um, the Rebellion. So Andy had this really great idea about how um, Shades of Grey work on a color sort of scale within 
Star Wars, especially when you see how the different uniforms are represented between the Rebels and the Empire. Well, yeah, and it works on a couple of levels, I thought. We were just talking about it, um, you know, uh, last week. And the the interesting thing, if you look at it visually, especially, obviously, with the, with the movies, because... It's hard to do it with the books, but um, <laughs> if you look at it visually, you see a lot the um, the lowest ranking uh, underlings, if you will, in in the Empire, the stormtroopers and the uh, like fighter pilots. For the most part, they're in black and white. I mean, it is very they they know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They know exactly to whom they report, and they that's it. That's the only thing that that matters to them. And above them, the officers are dressed in different shades of gray. And I thought that was a little interesting because it's a little representative of, well, their officers are supposed to be making decisions and, and giving giving orders to the other ones. But the other thing that's, um, the other level on which it works is that the empire is all pretty much shades of gray. There are notable exceptions, of course, but compared to the resistance and the rebellion, they are bland shades of gray and then you get the all the colors the oranges the yellow everything in the rebellion and the diversity that they um draw from is part of what makes you know makes them more successful not only uh logistically when i say successful accomplishing um stated you know like goals of just blowing up the death star or whatever but also successful in again changing hearts and minds and keeping the the people with them. I think the rebels are, are fighting with what they have out mm-hmm. of the, uh, the the bargain bin at the <laughs> galactic army navy surplus store. Mm-hmm. I, I come from an organization that can't make its mind up about what uniform color it wants to wear, so I empathize with the empire <laughs> in that sense. If you look in the average army formation right now, you'll see like 17 different uniform styles. We can't pick a camouflage. We can't pick a dress uniform. So I get it. Yeah, but I think it, I think it's just really interesting because it kind of goes back to that variety of tactics and the idea that the Empire looks at everything in black and white, where, where the Rebellion sees more shades of color. Okay, so next we're going to talk about radicalism in the Rebellion. Um, so the best example of this is Saul. We've already talked about that a little bit. Um, so first we're going to watch a clip from Rebels. I tried to come off, trim off the first 55 seconds, so we just get to watch an extra 55 seconds of Rebels. So. Hope that's okay. You're upset. What is it? I just feel so helpless. I thought being here would get me closer to helping Lothal. But now that I am, it seems farther away than ever. Sid. Find your center. Something else? When we were on Geonosis with Sa, we didn't always agree with how he did things. But it seems like he's the only one who doesn't care about all the politics. He just... fights. Ezra, it's not whether or not we fight. It's... It's how we choose to fight that matters. I know, Kanan. Maybe we're choosing the wrong way. 
members of the Alliance to restore the Republic. So? Your losses today stem from your leader's cowardice. Their unwillingness to take decisive action against the Empire. All across the galaxy, your people suffer while the leaders of this... <laughs> rebellion refuse to act. Should I shut it down? No, I want to speak to him. Madam Senator, I'm honored. What is your business here? You ignored my warning about the Delindi relay and paid the price. Now you have confirmation, yet still you refuse to destroy it. So long as our allies in the Senate have hope of a peaceful resolution to this conflict, I will not risk... If you continue to allow this war to be fought on the Empire's terms, not yours, you are going to lose. I will not be lectured on military strategy by a man who has proven himself a criminal. The Empire considers both of us criminals. <laughs> At least I act like one. You target civilians, kill those who surrender, break every rule of engagement. If we degrade ourselves to the Empire's level, what will we become? There she is! That's the leader the Rebellion needs! Where is that fire, that passion, when your people need it most? I hope, Senator, after you've lost, and the Empire reigns over the galaxy, unopposed, you will find some comfort in the knowledge that you fought according to the rules. That's enough. What are you afraid of, Senator? The truth. Return to your duties. That doesn't make you want to go binge Rebels. I don't know what other <laughs> clip will. I was going to say, and, and we could just end the panel there. No. Um, uh, chronologically speaking, is this before or after the uh, the shredding of the party where Jen finally saw what Saul what saw what saw what Saul was doing? <laughs> Sorry. Do you do you know if that's before or after? That? I don't know. Because it was the the planet the the party was on a planet in Usagi. very yeah very near uh, Naboo and that was a point but he it wasn't it point was that he didn't just target the the military folks but also the civilians there using flechette guns and that was like Jin was like ah this is not good finally you know there's there's it's interesting to see where the lines are for different characters and I think that was where Jin's was. I just, I just love that clip, and it's a great reminder that in the context of uprisings, radicals, rebels, your mainstream sort of dissenters, people like Mon Mothma, you are stronger together and you have better chances of success when you are working together. Um, they are often at odds, but they still have a singular goal and a common enemy. Um, popular uh, rebels in history, and I don't know, I'm thinking like, John Adams and Sam Adams, completely different tactics. MLK, uh, Malcolm X, completely different tactics. But when they push each other, they become better. And I think that if you just have a rebel without a radical, you're not gonna have success. You have hmm. to have people on your side pushing you all the time to stop worrying about politics every second. And you get success in the end. I'd, I'd like to specifically talk about this idea of you need a radical to make a rebellion work. Riley, do you have any thoughts on that? It's, it's interesting because yeah, if you look through history, that's just an example after example. I mean, Steve, you know, I can't think of a better example when you look at the two atoms. Like as, as you approach 
something like the Galactic Empire, we see a preview of what actually happens. Like what he's warning Mon Mothma that the Empire reigns and you'll be looking over your failure. That's, I mean, ultimately, as fans who know what happens next, we know <coughs> that's the ultimate, um, ultimate fate. And I think that it is important because it's kind of easy to recognize the the easiest people to sympathize with but uh you have to take it in account what the actual what the actual risks are in the big picture without compromising and it it's just required you have to compromise on some level yeah and i think um mon mothma, mon mothma uh there's the line in there where she drew she drew her line as long as there we have allies that are that can gosh i cannot get one job as long as our allies in the Senate have a possibility of of, of, of uh, resolving it peacefully, you know, and that's that's the that's the line. That's the line between resistance and rebellion. I think so. This debate that plays out in this clip here is one of the the core pieces of Star Wars fabric. You have seen this debate, whether you have realized it or not, play out again and again across all of the films. Go back to Phantom Menace, the Trade Federation invades Naboo, what's the proper response? They're debating in the Senate, uh, some folks wanna send a commission to just study, uh, Padme's ready for direct action. Hey, we're, we're under siege right now, our people are being put into prison camps right now, this is not the time to debate things. And this is coming from somebody who's been brought up in politics. Fast forward to the Clone Wars, there's a wonderful episode where Anakin meets Tarkin as they're escaping this uh, this prison built to, to contain Jedi, and they're having this debate about whether the Republic is willing to go far enough to defeat the Separatist threat. This debate is nothing new, and, and in the context of, of real conflict, this debate is eternal and goes back millennia. Uh, you know, any force that has, has either risen up or fought in any conflict has this debate. It's being played out right now, and it's it's something that's very personal to me. I, I spent 12 months in Afghanistan advising on international and operational law, and these exact same debates happen. They happen with the, the, the partner forces that we're with. I mean, there's a an amendment on the books, it's called the Leahy Amendment, so it's just a, a law that U.S. forces have to follow, but if uh, partner forces are discovered to have committed war crimes, uh, under our definition of it, we can't fund and fight them, fight with them anymore. And and so the you know there's this constant debate. It's it's a constant concern over how far do you have to go to achieve your means. And I just love that this gray area of the rebellion is something that is alive and well in Star Wars content across all mediums. I'm watching I'm watching Hong Kong right now with just utter fascination for for this same reason because. You have, um, you know, you have a rebellion going on of sorts against the against the Chinese and against the Hong Kong government, um, and you have the the purists, the rebels on the ground, the radicals, I guess, who really, really want Hong Kong to be completely free of the Chinese government. They're encircled by them, and then you have the people who also want the Chinese out. They they work in the Hong Kong government. They don't want the Chinese to come in and take over everything, but they also want to save the radicals from themselves. They know if they push too hard, if they edge the Chinese too hard, then they're going to roll the tanks in. 
um, they're trying to protect their, what they all share together, but they have completely different ideas of what is going to do it. Um, you're going to get to a point in Hong Kong where the government is going to start hosing down their own people, but they're doing it to keep the Chinese from taking over in many cases. And this is like this is what you have happening with rebel movements all the time is just this this fear that it could end up being worse than how it was in the beginning if you can't work together toward a shared goal. That's that propaganda that's so important. Again, going back to hearts and hearts and minds, um, and I I cannot remember where exactly it is from, but I do I think it has come up several times in the in the EU about somebody in the empire saying those people that just died in that battle that we just fought didn't have to die if the rebellion had just not attacked you know it's like it, it way, ways of spinning it ways of spinning that's why you have to be so careful with your methods and they're they're probably dealing with the same thing oh, there absolutely. yeah and, and the introduction of an american flag and american stuff into the protests in hong kong very very divisive mm. and, it, and it's almost just like throwing blood in the water for the Chinese government, because now it's not about Hong Kong, it's about them versus the United States. And anybody who's trying to control the message in that whole situation has got to be like, oh God, put away the American flags. Hong Kong is also a really good example of where we see resistance slowly turning into um, a more violent rebellion, because it just started with a march, and there were like two million people marching in the street. If you've not seen pictures from it, it's just, um, it's just phenomenal. Um, to look at and we've slowly moved towards both more you know violent active means and means and also um some not so violent active means a couple weeks ago um the chinese government decided that laser pointers were a weapon uh so the people of hong kong took to the streets with laser pointers and had a rave basically in the in the street for hours that i had to monitor in case it became a like violent problem where they were just shining laser pointers on this um observatory dome um we've kind of skated around this um but how exactly does radicalism help bolster the other side? So how does Saw help? That's the messaging. Yep. It helps, helps the empire? Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's again, the messaging. Um, and, and they made the point just then about, well, we're both criminals, so, you know, might as well act like it. The, the message is already out there. Um, and that, that scene I was talking about with the, with the orchestrating of the massacre at that party, uh, you know, he's just... He's like, yeah, well, we've already been labeled criminals. We're just going to do it. Thinking that if we can cow people more into being scared of us, then they'll be on our side. I don't, but. Yeah, and, and you, have, you have so many people up for grabs in society. You have, you have, you know, team red and team blue and then majority are team purple. And they're kind of like, eh, I'm not really like into this. Right. <laughs> but what they end up reacting to is negative polarization. What are they like more afraid of? What are they really made uncomfortable by? And then they end up going the other way. I do TV news commentary. That's kind of what I wanted to bring here. And I go, I do Fox a lot. And if something goes down in, in Portland and they can make the entire morning about Antifa, then they are able to ignore everything else. They're able to ignore poverty, they're able to ignore inequality because a couple people with black masks smashed a Starbucks. And that exactly is the kind of thing that I think your democratic strategist who wants to get someone in the White House is going, stop stealing my attention. Like I'm trying to win a campaign here and the entire country is distracted by this. 
And that's what you have happen in Star Wars with you know, Saw and all that. Anytime that they bomb a depot and a civilian gets killed, the Empire is able to drum that up into, you know, look, you can't trust these people, but you trust us because we at least keep your, your streets safe and keep gangs out. And, and the other place that that, that that comes in on the other side, so going the other direction, um, in when, again, we're talking about where lines are, get back to, but uh, after Palpatine's death and then the initiation of the contingency and Operation Cinder, there's that line that Inferno Squad was like, that, you know, Iden and... Thank you, Dell. We're like, uh, I, I knew I was, I was, I didn't, I was, I was I didn't even, for it. I didn't even for it. inhale to begin to speak. I just knew. <laughs> they, you know, they, they found their line. They found their line. And it's like, yeah. that's where they decided that what the empire was doing was a step too far. And, you know, that messaging then can be used to bolster the other side. So. How many folks have read Pablo Hidalgo's uh, illustrated book uh, on propaganda in the Star Wars universe? It, it is incredible. Like it is, it's beautiful. Like beautiful artwork. It's all about in-universe propaganda from all sides and all time periods within the galaxy, not just the Galactic Civil War that we see. But what it encapsulates there, if you if you look to the section about the the Civil War and particularly the Imperial products, is this clear notion that this element of fear that Andy talked about, you know, encapsulated in the Tarkin uh, uh, doctrine. Thank you. My words are failing on Monday morning. The Tarkin doctrine is not about, hey, you need to fear the Empire because we've got big guns and lots of Star Destroyers and many troops. The Tarkin doctrine is about this whole concept of fear that uh, you know, not just we have the guns to, to put you down if you are in open rebellion against us, but there's a lot out there in this big galaxy to fear. We have the means to protect you. The Death Star was as much about uh, instilling fear in uh, worlds that thought they might rise up, that they would get destroyed, as it was to, to project this sense of strength to its citizens to say, look at this big gun we have. Don't worry if a rebellion, if, if a threat to the galaxy comes up, we've got the means to take care of it very, very quickly. Thomas, would you say it was a mistake that the Death Star was the unifying factor for the factions of the rebellion, where they realized they couldn't play separate sides anymore, that they needed to come together? Do you think that that was the strategic mistake that they went too far from? I think the strategic mistake was in uh, you know, not taking care of Jen Erso because she was the single unifying factor <laughs> in the rebel. I, no, yeah, I, I, I say yeah, that with absolutely, absolute You're absolutely sincerity. right. Yeah. The, the rebellion was about to fracture uh -huh. around that, that campaign table on Yavin, and it was, it was her, not the Death Star. They, I, the, the mix of reactions to the Death Star was it doesn't exist. Your father's a war criminal and a liar who is trying to set us up and draw us into a conflict. They were ready to go and, and continue this, uh, this dink and dunk campaign, even with evidence right before their one. very eyes that this thing is real and it can do exactly what it's built to do because Jetta was in flames uh, as they were having this debate. So I, you know, I think it was a motivator to get folks around the table, but you know, it was, you could see the powerfulness of its, its effect on the rebellion as they had that debate because they, it was almost like they were so afraid of this idea that, uh, you know, they were ready to scatter and run. 
and and that's what Jin fixed on and, and sort of stepped in to, to prevent. Mm-hmm. Riley, you look like you wanted to jump in. Well, it's it's just fascinating to me because that's where propaganda really comes in because it determines whether or not your use of power is seen as legitimate, mm. and and often that that could be a really widely sliding scale. So I, I think of like um, with my unit when we're operating, there are extensive rules of engagement that determine whether or not you are not allowed to drop a bomb on a target and how that process is fascinating and a layered process that you have to go through. But like, I remember thinking to myself, like, where do these come from? You talk about the Leahy Amendment and they they are important, but they come from somewhere and the way we justify them, it, it can be dangerous. Cause I, and I, I think what kind of gives away, we've talked about some of the results, some of the, um, the Death Star itself as a unifying factor, but it really comes from, you go back to Revenge of the Sith, the idea of, um, I remember even Anakin, he's like, you're sounding like a separatist. If you're not mm-hmm. with the prevailing power, then you're just with the separatists. And we have, I think the greatest piece of Star Wars propaganda is Palpatine's speech. And he's like, I've left me scarred and reformed, but I assure you, mm-hmm. my resolve has never been stronger. But it's pretty good. If you, if good. you thought, like, you, if you, at that point, you don't realize, hey, this is kind of a bad guy, um, I don't think you're necessarily going to do anything but just go along with whatever the Imperial plan is. Yeah, and, and that leads my mind to something I, we may, we're supposed to hit, but do it now. Yeah. Um, the, the First Order versus the, the Empire. Um, hey, hey, look at that uh, segue. So I and I think I think one of the, the the interesting the interesting part there was the the gradual transition of the republic, you know, the gradual translation uh, degradation of the republic, and then uh, kind of rising from the ashes of uh, Palpatine Galactic Empire, and it's and even when he creates the Galactic Empire, it's still nobody's nobody's. People are not, in general, worried until gradually things start going away. Gradually, 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 and then the Senate's gone. Okay, and now we've got you know the apex of the Empire, the First Order, completely different, completely different. Somebody else can take that. I, the, the aspect of the conflict between the First Order resistance and New Republic that I find most fascinating is that after Return of the Jedi in current canon. Uh, the New Republic that emerged was not this massive military uh, machine. Mon Mothma specifically looked at the Galactic Civil War and was like, look at the wreckage of this conflict. We cannot have one of these again. And a core debate, including on individual planets, was, you know, to, to what degree is is the military worthwhile in the society that we're building post-Empire? And they decided, you know, a small defense fleet uh, is the right way to go. It was not a unanimous decision, mm-hmm. but you flash forward to the, the emergence of the First Order, and what is fascinating is this, you know, the, the resistance is not born out of, uh, you know, the destruction of the New Republic. The, the resistance is born out of a feeling amongst folks like Leia that the threat is not being taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And so again, I, I told you, you know, my point at the beginning was this debate that you see Saw and Mon Mothma have plays out over and over again. What played out in Force Awakens or just off screen in the sense that you've got a group of individuals that say, hey, there's a threat out here and we don't believe it's being met appropriately. 
And even within the resistance, you see a debate about how exactly to, to take this fight, how exactly to respond to this threat. If you've read the Poe Dameron comics, you see this, uh, this debate play out about the rules of engagement that the resistance has. They, they are not taking on the First Order in direct action. They're not supposed to engage First Order TIE fighters. You see, how many folks have watched the uh, resistance cartoon series? A great example, right? So the First Order is not seen necessarily across the galaxy as these big bad guys. Mm -hmm. They kind of look like the Empire, but it's been 30 years. Nobody, uh, you know, nobody is connecting those dots directly. They're there to provide security on on this uh, fuel platform, the Colossus. At first. Yeah, at first. <laughs> at first. Same thing. But, uh, you know, so this, and, and, and I think you're, it, it's obviously come to a fine point with the destruction of Hosnian Prime and then the near destruction of the resistance. But that's one thing that's gonna be really interesting to see play out because now the resistance at the end of The Last Jedi has been whittled down to a nub. How does the galaxy respond? Um, hopefully with Y-wings. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the interesting thing, you know, we get these, we get these um, motifs. Well, re repeated things that happen the same, just like, just like that conversation you said has been coming all through Star Wars and you got this We've already talked about Jen saying, here's the threat. It's super real and amazingly bad. Um, we have evidence, I've seen it. Uh, I don't know if we wanna deal with it. And then you have Leia who does her investigations during, you know, uh, that's bloodline, right? Yeah. And she has the evidence. She she saw the First Order's buildup of, of uh, material you know, and then of course she blew up the entire base, but you know, she saw it, she knows it's a real threat and she goes to say, guys, this is a real threat. And, but because of propaganda, because of, you know, fear or whatever, they're just like, no, no, we don't wanna, we don't wanna deal with this. And then out of seemingly nowhere to them, here comes the first order blowing up the planet again. You know, it's like and over you have, and over. And you have senators um, playing footsie with the ideas of the empire. We see mm. that all the time. Ideas that should have been put to rest a hundred years ago, lingering on, and people call it heritage, and it just stays there. What was it? What's the name of the senator? Ransom Casterfo. Ransom Casterfo has the imperial flag in his desk, and he's like, "Oh, it was my family. It's okay." This is this happens in uh, in real life all around us. So there's one more thing that I want to talk about with the empire. We've touched on the difference in tactics on the side of the rebels. Um, is there anyone that you think is an answer to Saul on the side of the of the Empire where they use extreme tactics to achieve their goals? Tarkin, the guy that blew up Alderaan and in his early days <laughs> was de dealt with a pirate threat near his homeworld by programming the uh, or sending a virus into the pirate's uh, uh, Nava computer that sent them into a star. <laughs> like, <laughs> Tarkin, Tarkin outed himself during the Clone Wars as a guy that that believed thoroughly in the idea that the gloves need to come off no matter what the threat. Um, I, I don't think he knows where his gloves are. And there's a there's a there's a comic if you if you don't read the Star Wars comics and you go out and, and buy one, they've got this series of one shots right now, Age of Resistance, Age of Rebellion, and and each up each issue is about a character. Well Tarkin's issue is and they're little bite-sized stories. Tarkin's issue is about this moment uh, where after the Death Star fires for the first time, he's analyzing data about the reaction rates, how quickly the Death Star gunners took action and fired. And he's upset and uh, because he, he views that some hesitated. He 
confronts the officer in charge of these uh, Death Star gunners and brawls him shirt off. It's like a really weird animation to see like Tarkin like shirtless and just <laughs> boxing with this officer. But like that's him in a nutshell. I mean, he's like saw on complete steroids. Yeah, and and you know when you say that and you, you brought up the gunners, I immediately thought of Thrawn, um, and and how he's the just kind of the opposite of that, and yet still both of them rose, you know, obviously very high in the ranks and doing very well. And Thrawn, when dealing with um, with uh, t- tractor beam operators, is the in the in the most recent uh, Thrawn book, uh, uh, Treason, yeah. Um, and and he said, "Hey, how are the performance on these? You know, these these tractor beam o- operators? And instead of like beating them <laughs> or whatever, he says, you know, he's like, you should promote that one. I noticed, and that one, let's get him some remedial work. Yeah, okay, that's he needs remedial tractor beam school. All right, that's cool. But that's just I I thrown at his core. I think when it's convenient." plays by the rules and plays the professional military officer but when it when you see him when the stakes are highest i think you see that he's willing to do in his mind whatever is necessary and i go to the end of the rebel series where uh, you know all these rules kind of go out the window when his tie defender plant on lothal is is under siege uh you know what does he do he brings his star destroyers into low orbit and is ready to bombard uh you know, capital city there and, and kill whatever civilians are necessary because he knows that's the straw that'll break in his mind the rebels back that's what'll get them to back down and i just love the line uh back uh when he's uh, he's finally found found the rebel secret base on adalon and he messages hera simply to say i'm not accepting your surrender <laughs> like prepare to die mm. So uh, next, I want to talk about the validity of this of this conflict. I'm going to throw this one to you, Riley. Is this violence the best way to go about um, solving this? What was once a political issue? So uh, man, there's because there's so much to it. Uh, broad question. Uh, I'll tackle it. The, <laughs> what I guess the, in the in warfare for centuries has become, at least in real world, has become. Not more sophisticated, but there, there have the idea of rules of engagement is a. I mean, it's a product of just war theory, and it's there's always been violations of it. But nation states and through history have endeavored, how do we, this thing that is as old as mankind, how do we at least uh, make some kind of agreed upon rules of conflict, and in the Star Wars universe, I I think we've really covered it in that if you're able to come together and bring the the radical side um, and the resistance side with the rebellion side and and come to a common goal where you uh, and I I think like Saw is an example of someone who refused to but for those who are willing to use that common goal to actually have your own version of say Geneva Convention um, that's that's where it's justified but like when you get to the I think the example of where the empire so obviously and glaringly we talk about Tarkin and the radicals the it the example I think in Lucas's story of just how far gone beyond any kind of semblance of legitimacy this power is being exercised I mean I think in in a new hope you just have to look at Tarkin's line where he's like Dantooine's too far too remote to settlement <laughs> 
let's do Alderaan. And like that, it's so obvious that it's just arbitrary. There's no justice. There's no legitimacy to the power here. And that's that's when it falls short. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, I think the answer is obvious. Obviously, I think Star Wars is at the point where violence is warranted so that people can survive. The first movie starts off uh, with the Death Star project going into implementation. But, you know, governments are based off of different things for legitimacy. Monarchies have the instilled idea that you are ordained by God and that you are there because God chose you to be king or prince or part of a family. And if that starts to be undermined, then so does your rule. In this country, we have the Constitution, and you know that's like what gives you the legitimacy to be in charge. And if you are not enforcing what's in the Constitution, you're an illegitimate leader. Um, different kinds of governments have different ways. We don't really know at Star Wars um, what makes a leader legitimate in the Republic, and then what the Empire would have been to have been an invalidation of that. But I think just going off of our gut, obviously we know that this is a fight for survival, um, and it's time to take the gloves off. But I. The, the clip from Mon Mothma in, in Rebels that you showed earlier, I think, encapsulates it because they, she recognizes they don't have legitimacy other than to say that this is an oppressive regime that needs to go. And to the extent that they need to win over the galaxy at large to continue to gain support, they're not going to do that at the ballot box, right? That doesn't exist. And so what they need to do, the only way that they can show the galaxy at large that uh, you know they are the cause to get behind is a highlighting the atrocities that the the galactic empire continues to to perpetuate on its own citizens and then tries to cover up um you know i.e calling jedi mining disaster right um and b fighting by the rules right like you know it's like a a board game box and i, I think the knee-jerk reaction and saw encapsulates this is to look at things like the the law of war rules of engagement as these handcuffs that prevent you from achieving your goal can i add on that thomas like sure like i think what you you mentioned reminded me of of v for vendetta and the idea of you know i feel what you feel when he gets up there and speaks to the country the government is the ultimate gaslighter they, they basically just try to make you sort of feel like everything that you're seeing is not actually happening. What you're feeling that you're not being prosperous is not actually what you're feeling. Um, and then, you know, the rebellion kind of comes in to go, you're not crazy. What you see on your community streets is not normal and it shouldn't be normal. And then when you have more people wake up like that, that's when things start to fall apart and the rebellion forms. I'm, re- I'm, re- I'm sorry, I'm reminded of the line in Solo when... Um, <laughs> When Han asked his uh, infantry captain, he's like, "What? What is our goal? <laughs> to bring to bring peace and order to the you know and safety to the people of this planet? It's like we're the invaders, you know." Well, that was way back. Oh, that was way back when they still did the Imperial March in a major key. I I will say in that scene, I'm just upset that they had an Imperial Major and he met an unfortunate end. (laughs) As as a fellow Major and field grade officer, I, you know, that needs to be recut. The only final thing that I would add is that I think what ultimately does justify the conflict on the side of the resistance is that the Empire is an autocracy and there's no outside means of control. So the only way to get rid of them is um, armed rebellion. So uh, the last thing is that using what we've discussed today, what do you think is the best tactics for the rebellion in the future? Is it hearts and minds? Is that what we should be going towards as we all laugh at Anakin's plan for the future? Well, it absolutely at this point, you know, at this uh, point in what we have in the movies where 
as Thomas said, the rebellion's down to a nubbin, um, or the resistance is down to a nubbin. Uh, it has to be. It has to start that way because there's literally not enough people to do armed resistance on any kind of uh, effective scale. So they have to win, you know, win over more people. They have to, maybe they need to radicalize some more folks. I, it's it's interesting because we, we see the First Order as this military entity. We don't, we haven't seen really anything about their political aims. So we've, we've seen very little content in terms of what happens post-Hosnian, are they out there trying to, to uh, take over planets and install governments. I mean, you know, they don't even have a central base other than Snoke's ship, the Supremacy, right? It, which is now split in half and mm-hmm. floating around somewhere, uh, just like their leader. I was going to say uh, that, yeah. <laughs> nice. I, I shared this theory at the Rise of Skywalker panel yesterday. I, one thing, there's that shot in the, the trailer from D23 that came out where you see a bunch of uh, Imperial Star Destroyers, not First Order or Resurgent Class Star Destroyers, that are all yeah, just all lined up. And, you know, the two theories that sort of go back and forth in my mind is, is one, somebody posed the idea that the Rebellion gets a, or the Resistance Rebellion gets a bead on uh, derelict Imperial ships these these star destroyers takes them over and all of a sudden that's the uh that's the force that they use i don't know where they get the bodies to man all of those ships oh my god two people on each ship yeah personally i i think they've got a their biggest challenge is is what's the response to leia's message you see her put out her personal code at the end of the last jedi and there is no response there's just silence so what's happened in that gap where the galaxy uh, you know, sees and absorbs what's happened to Hosnian Prime and now this threat that's very real that before maybe had been something that was easy to stick your head in the sand and ignore. Um, my personal hope is that this is an Imperial remnant that's existed, that the First Order was not the, the Emperor's actual contingency plan, that this was like a, you know, a sideways offshot that uh, is, is sort of a, a mix-up of what he intended and that this core imperial remnant has been out there if you've read the aftermath trilogy there's a a little bit in there where about a quarter of the fleet uh the imperial fleet was unaccounted for post uh post return of the jedi and and this is a quarter of the fleet that 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 did not show up at jakku for the the big (laughs) beatdown and i i kind of think that they've been hanging out, biding their time, and they're going to come in uh, and, and sort of have this three-way battle or just this two-ray battle where it's like that scene in Step Brothers, if you've seen it, where they're fighting on the front lawn, they just hit each other simultaneously, <laughs> well, and, the, and the rebellion resistance is like, oh, okay. Yeah, that, that could actually work out and work with the contingency because, you know, he sent it, he's, uh, he's had intended to send everybody out into, un- not everybody, but, you know, to trust a group out into unknown space to start over. Maybe. I don't know. Yes. I just think the, the galaxy needs to break back down into system by system governance, no republic at all, uh, and uh, respect each other's autonomy and have trade deals that keeps everybody happy and, uh, and you know, bringing in goods and then we won't have any more of this tyranny stuff. Hey, you, you, Don't you, call in the Nemoidians. You could have, yeah, you could have uh, some, some, some uh, uh, no a small fleet. representation of these pirates <laughs> and uh, nothing bad will happen there. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, and I'll tack on. I, I think it would be really interesting to see if the First Order were, if they were the ones who jumped the gun, like to radicalized extreme. No, we're here. We're in it now. We have our super weapon, and they jumped in too early, and now the real threat, you know, comes in. Well, Hux was involved. So we have two minutes. Anyone got any final conclusions they want to drop that they they didn't get in earlier? I, I think that you know, there's. So that there's no confusion here, right? The, while the rebellion has these struggles, as all fighting forces that are, you know, rising up against an oppressive government have, at its core, it is clear through all the movies that they are on the right side. Uh, you know, the, the problems that they have with folks like Saw and, and these debates that they have are emblematic of every single resistance movement, movement whether it results to violence or not. And I think the, the obvious end conclusion is that they overcame those flaws. They've got a challenge with the First Order now, but they've Ooh. overcome those flaws without it. There are different kinds of rebels outlined in a book by Cass Sunstein, who worked in the Obama administration, called The World According to Star Wars. And he looks at uh, the natural rebel, the pushed rebel, and the opportunist rebel as the three things that you need to unite to have a, a big tidal wave to actually knock down a tyrannical regime. The natural rebel is the person who just is, is sort of born to rebel. They see things and they're like, I just want to push over that system. That's your Jenny or so. That's Leia. She rebels against everything she sees. Your opportunist rebel is Han. He's the guy who sort of checks the wind. Is like, all right, I see where this is blowing. He has a good heart, but he, he waits until it's like, I know this will, will go the way that I want it to go. And then you have the pushed rebel. Um, who, you know, someone who loses everything. They have nothing left, you know, to live for, or they just feel like they've been agitated enough. That's Luke after, uh, after his aunt and uncle are killed. Um, and in our own world, these are the factions who you're trying to combine um, against whatever, uh, whatever enemy you're trying to take down as well in politics or, or in movements. Um, but one thing we have to remember as well is the, the people who have no choice. I think even Han... Leia and Luke all come from a relative position of privilege and choice where they are far away from these threats in some context. Um, there are people like the, the Wookiees who they, there's no choice but subjugation or fighting back. Um, and so these are, these are the, the different elements you have to bring together for a, a proper social movement. And I think that's a good place to stop. That book that uh, Stephen was talking about is amazing. You should definitely check it out. Um, but that's all we've got time for today. So thank you guys for coming at 10 a.m. on a Monday. You've made it through. Enjoy the rest of your pod. Thank you. Thank you guys.